there are also several important factors which make the Ukraine issue a really big deal in a way that the people who like to woke scold people on the internet for only, you know, standing up for Ukraine instead of for Yemen or Palestine or whatever, that they do not fully grasp, which is that the scale of this is larger than anything we have seen in a long time, potentially since like World War II. Um, it took about seven years to create 7 million internally displaced people in the Yemen-Saudi conflict. It took seven weeks to do that in Ukraine. That number is now at 12.5 oh, wow. million internally displaced persons. Jeez. So Holy it is a shit. huge country. The city of Mariupol, which is basically dust and ashes right now, completely leveled by Russian artillery, is the size of Miami. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Growing Up Christian. I'm Sam. And I'm Casey. And Casey, this week um, I was at work and I got a call from my neighbor. My neighbor doesn't call just to like chat, so I was just like, "Oh shit, something's up." And um, he was like, "Hey, your your smoke detectors are all going off, and I don't I don't know if anybody's home because there's no cars." And he he keeps a good eye on my house. He's like he works overnight, so he's home all day. And uh, dude, he's he's one of the, he's like the the quintessential neighbor. Like I had work being done on my basement at one point, and the guy who is doing the work rolls up in a pickup truck and goes inside. Within thirty seconds of that guy getting there, my neighbor calls me and is just like, "Hey, a guy just showed up at your house with a pickup truck. Is he supposed to be there?" Like, yeah, he's good. He's like, I think my neighbor's the kind of guy who might also go in there and like beat the shit out of him if he wasn't supposed to be there (laughs) before he called the cops. You know, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I, I I think, I think he's like, he might be excited about the opportunity to go ahead and defend my house for me while I'm out. And uh, he's, he's like, he's just a great guy. I fucking love having him for a neighbor. And uh, so, but when he calls, I'm like, oh my God, that like scared me. And then I have all, um, I have the, google nest um smoke detectors and we got those because in one week they went off like three times my smoke detectors had the ones that were like with the house when we got it had gone off like three times at like two in the morning three in the morning it just happened constantly we had talked about getting these things because i mean they're we knew people who had them and they're like we love them because it, it it all connects through Wi-Fi, and it goes to your phone. You get alerts, and you can silence them. Sometimes instead of the alert. traditional one, where like the the nine volt starts to go bad, and so it just beeps incessantly, no matter how many times you change it or push yeah. the button. Or they get dusty, and they like I said, they just go off all the time. There's something like, we, about the pitch makes it impossible oh, to determine dude. which one is screaming at you. Yeah, and especially because <laughs> then they are all linked in my house, so they go off all together. And now with the, the Google ones, it's like you set the room. So it tells you there's smoke detected in the kitchen. Great. Now I know which button to press. But you can also silence it on your phone uh, if you catch it ahead of time. Uh, if it's like it'll also tell you if it's like if it thinks there's smoke uh, before it gets bad, like maybe it steam. Just, it just texts you. and It's like, are you making fajitas or is this yeah. a house fire? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's like um, I, I just was. But I didn't get the alert on my phone this time. Uh, but uh, my wife did, so I was like, ended up asking her if she had gotten it, and she's like, "Yeah, whatever." But 
it obviously was nothing. Um, otherwise, I'd probably be telling this story in a slightly different way. But what just killed me about it, dude, is uh, how dumb teenagers are. And it's like, so I knew I knew my foster son was home. So I I I, I texted him and um, was like, "Hey, are the are the smoke alarms going off?" And he's like, "Yeah, is everything okay?" I was like. I don't know. I'm not home. You are, dude. Go upstairs and check. Like, what are you asking me for? That's just like the worst text. Are, is, yeah, is everything okay? He's in his room, just like laying in bed. Letting him go, like, has no interest in getting up to make sure everything's cool. Oh, my God. And it was uh, just letting it beep. He just puts his headphones in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it turned out I was just that uh, our foster daughter was just making um making eggs. And she, oh. yeah, <laughs> making fajitas. She was just making eggs and she like cooked the butter. She like walked away for a second and the butter started smoking and that was it. Um, but she, I was just like, what kind of a response is that? And dude, he's, I mean, this kid has slept through all the times that my smoke alarms have gone off in the middle. And before we, like when we got the new ones, he's like, why'd you guys get all the new smoke detectors? We're like, because it went off three times in the middle of the night last week. Really? I'm like, yeah. How do you sleep through that? There's one right outside your bedroom door. I wake up like in a panic Dude, when those go off at three in the morning and you have kids and two dogs that just like kids start crying, dogs start barking. I have vaulted ceilings, so I have to run down to my fucking garage and get a step ladder that's tall enough for me to like put up <laughs> the whole time. I'm just like screaming and swearing under my breath. And oh, my God, dude, it's just it's it's awful. And it was that time that I finally after like the third time I was just because I was I hate spending money on stuff that I don't think I need so well, that's such a boring purchase yeah yeah and it's like they're like a hundred ish bucks like per one and the next day I was just like fuck it put it on the credit card I'm not doing this again I'll pay that money to never have to do this again I I, I hate it yeah I, I don't know I, I feel like I've never come close to a house fire except for one time and I wasn't there for it it was like two years ago, three years ago, something like that. And um, a bunch of my wife's friends were over and several of them do OnlyFans. And so they were going to do a photo shoot out in the woods, you know, and um, so all these girls come over and they're all hanging out and chatting and stuff in the in the kitchen. And April has candles like all over the place. Our house smells great. We just got a lot of candles around. Right. And so there was a candle lit like a on the temple. kitchen table. <laughs> right. Furnished by Yankee Candle. <laughs> but there's Paying like one of those to your ancestors. <laughs> so one of the girls had like, I don't know, like this. It looked like it must have been like a, a gauzy robe thing from like Wish. You know, so it's like <laughs> the lowest quality plastic, probably prone to setting on fire. And on their way out the back door, I guess she just kind of threw it on the table and part of it landed over top of this lit candle. So they all go out and they're in the, in the woods doing their shoot. And they're like, do you hear that beeping? Oh my God. They they come back to the house and the kitchen table is on fire. It's a (laughs) blaze. Holy shit. Yeah. And so they had to like throw water on it and stuff to put it out. And the fire alarms are going off and stuff. He gets done and and this robe thing has melted into like a plastic, like a hard plastic skin over top of the table. 
Meaning like if you buy your pajamas from Wish and you do get in a house fire, third degree burns don't even begin to describe what you have. <laughs> You're like a super villain in a Marvel movie now. it's like reflective plastic skin coating you it's like a it's like a batman villain oh god and yeah it immediately it's like uh it yeah it grafts it grafts to your skin immediately yeah exactly like dr octopus there's a lot of villain parallels we could make yeah well it's like a quintessential uh comic book villain thing is a disfigured face in some horrific accident uh when i lived in uh, when I was in college, like, I don't know, a year into marriage where I'm still not, I'm still young. I was like 20 times. So not a lot of life experience. I had things, I don't know, documents, I guess that I was like, we don't need these, but we don't want to like put them in the trash. I was still in like that. I was taught not to throw things with personal information in the trash or whatever. I do that all the time. Now, if anyone goes through my trash, they'll definitely be able to steal my identity quickly. Uh, Pro tip. I imagine that that's, I just don't worry about stuff like that. But in college, I was like, I, you're not supposed to get rid of this. Uh, I don't know what to do with it. So I like put it in. I, um, I like grabbed a, like a bathroom trash can, a metal trash can, and threw all my documents in it and set them on fire. <laughs> Apparently forgot <laughs> that uh, metal trash cans are pretty serious heat conductors. And after the fire had gone out, I went to pick up the trash can with both my hands. I just like palms pressed against it going to pick it up and bring it back inside <laughs> it's just like instantly started screaming it's just like oh my god i dropped it and just it wasn't serious birds by any means but it was just like how fucking dumb could i have been to think that i could burn things in a metal trash can and then pick it up with my hands afterwards <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh boy well uh <laughs> crazy week uh it's a it's definitely good that most of us had a long weekend after the news cycle this week it was insane yeah i it's i don't know what to say hard to really know yeah exactly we were talking about this beforehand about how every take on this the shooting in texas has been said and by smarter people than us it's hard in to know really times. what to say. I, I we we kind of feel like we don't really have anything to add to the equation. But it was horrific, and uh, you know we we wish the best to the families involved. And and uh, yeah, I just, I mean, God, what what do you? How do you even offer any thoughts or condolences or anything on this without just sounding yeah. like hollow? And there's there's don't. really hard. It's hard to say much of anything. I mean, I don't think anyone there is gonna hear this and be like thanks guys appreciate it so i'm not yeah. really i have nothing to offer like if you have i i don't even know what you can uh you can offer money to organizations that support what you want them to but we're at a stalemate i i don't i think this feels particularly frustrating and i'm probably going to get into this more than i intended to now that we're just here i i don't i it just feels like there's um like the, this profound sickness in our country I mean, the fact that we're here again uh, and that it just feels so much more than like, like, yeah, okay. You could point to the individual shooters in all of the situations as just the sick ones, but just the way that everything plays out uh, feels, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to say at this point. Yeah. Like it happens the same way every time. 
the same arguments get made, the same outrage speeches on both sides get made. Yeah. You post on Twitter and Facebook and you say something has to get done and then nothing gets done. Like the sickness is that we've resigned to this being acceptable. Uh, I don't think anybody's resigned to it being acceptable. I think it's just, there's, there's, there's not a clear cut feasible solution to this. I, I, yeah, I I know that that. like, it's easy to jump in and say, well, do this, do that post, you know, Navy seals at every school or ban guns or whatever. It's just the worst takes. It's, it's not a feasible solution. Like even something is it's, it's a, it's, I think Charles kind of talks about it in the, in the interview. Um, yeah, which he we did a couple days ago. We wanted to put this one out right away because of the the uh, you know that that it's topical, you know, with everything that's going on in Ukraine. But I don't. It just feels like there's this is a an issue that legislation by itself is just not going to fix, and it's hard to to cope with a problem that doesn't have a foreseeable solution in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah, you know, you you had mentioned something that. Yeah, so actually to clarify when I say we've resigned to just accepting this, like I don't think we've like accepted it in the sense that everyone goes, well, you know, we like things the way they are, therefore we're okay with it. I just think we're, I think what I mean by that is that like it's, nothing's it's, changed. Like by by having no change and, and no clear cut path forward and no real options on the table and like being where we're at is just like, I don't know if you like, it feels like there's just like this we've resigned to just Twitter wars over in some sense. Uh, it doesn't feel like, like I don't what's, I don't know what, because nobody knows the path forward. It's like screaming into the void. Isn't it? We know that not that people don't have the right to vent and to voice their opinion. I think there's an, a reason to do that if you need to. Um, I, I don't even trust everybody's motives on the internet. You know, they just want to like, let me, how do, how do I go viral with a tweet that's going to accomplish nothing, but maybe in, up my follower count. That sounds really fucking negative in some ways, but I just, I'm not saying anyone who tweets about it is disingenuous. I just, I think I'm just frustrated uh, and probably talking in circles a little bit because when you're, when you do look at this problem in the, in the way that, what everyone's ideas for the, 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 the path forward vary so much and have, uh, we don't have any real, what do you, when, when our legislation is functions the way that it does and people vote for the reasons they do. And each, you know, each state gets two senators and you're just like, Oh, I have, I have this candidate and that Casey, you, you, you and I were talking the other day about like West Virginia and how it's like you have Joe Manchin as a, pretend democrat doing pretend democrat things and it's like <laughs> it's like if your options are him and then like a republican well you have to kind of go down the list of values and you go oh well we have a pro-life democrat and a pro-life republican so okay can't really vote on that value let's go down enough and then you have like a pro-gun democrat and a pro-gun republican you like, can't really vote on that let's go down a notch so you're stuck like people you're stuck with you know, to, like a, a percentage of the country's senators being bad options for you and your values. Uh, but 
he's who made it to the top of the t- so you had to vote between him joe manchin and, and a republican so i don't know i i think that's what's also really annoying about the situation is just like what the people want doesn't matter when what the states want gets two representatives in the senate and, and then you're just you can't fix it on a, almost you can't fix it on a federal level but i don't think that that's like you should admit defeat I don't think we should. I don't know. I don't. It's just really it's, fucking frustrating. That yeah, is, it's it's not acceptance. It's it's despair. That's that's where yeah. we're at. It, yeah, it's it's at right. this point of where like as as angry as you are about about the fact that we're talking about another school shooting. I mean, I I don't know. I I I feel more and more that like I'm cynical in a lot of ways, and it's something yeah. that I think I I really got to get a handle on because it's. It's affecting a lot of things, my outlook on a lot of things now, and it doesn't do you any good, you know, but yeah, I just, I just don't see regardless of what you, you know, policy change or whatever you think would make a huge difference here or has in other countries or whatever it is, is the political will there to get it done. And in most cases, I think it's not like we're, we're at a stalemate legislatively on so many things right now. That I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I, you know, you you said it really well earlier this week when we were texting back and forth about it, about how, you know, the right gets a lot of, they get ridiculed a lot for being one issue voters or single issue voters. But like you're saying, I mean, everybody's kind of a single issue voter at some point when you have two choices. Yeah. And there's one that stands above the other on something that's important for you. That's who you vote for. I think- the the dude, the big thing that has got to happen and it's got to happen now because we're months away from the midterms. We're months away. There's time to make provisions. There's time to plan. There's time to do all sorts of things. No matter how cynical you are about our system of government, like you have got to vote. And you know we're we're a long ways from the election still. There's time to get a mail in ballot. There's time to you know to vote absentee. You got to vote. You know, whichever way, you know, whichever, whatever that means in your particular state, you have got to do it. And look, there's, there's a lot of people who that's a much tougher thing than it is for others, you know, like voting districts and things like that. And I mean, that's currently being shifted around in places like Florida and stuff. Even still, you got to vote. And the midterm turnout is usually terrible. And the midterm generally has a lot more consequences for us on a, on a, you know, daily basis than the presidential election i mean aside from the supreme court nominees and stuff. yeah because there's so many more options and like so many people just resign to the shittiest option available on election day uh as opposed to like you know making their vote count earlier on when there's more options yeah and so you know vote in the primaries if there's still time in your local elections and stuff like that but I, dude i would encourage everybody to do the mail-in ballot thing because it makes it so much easier to work to through. call for a fraudulent election and get a revote. Right? Exactly. Or, or take it to the courts. That's why. <laughs> ten, ten, 2,000 mules. We, we Dude, need I to watch s- that and talk about it at some point. We should it's, watch it's it. popping up left and right. Now. Yeah. Dinesh D'Souza is such a hack. He, yeah. World's biggest. Dude, one of the things <laughs> I do want to mention, though, uh, you made a good point that, and it's one that I had never considered. But it wasn't really a point. It was just more of an observation about the current state of things and the difficulty in making change is that 
you if you buy a gun and you register it in your name, uh, or you have to, you know, you buy a gun and it's registered, on, you can correct the way I've framed this already if you do. But like in a lot of states, you can just sell that gun, and then that per- in a private sale, and it, that gun's still registered under your name, but yeah, it's most owned states. by somebody else. Yeah. So so the thing is, you know, like when people talk about like the gun show loophole and stuff like that, that that doesn't apply to any guns that are bought through a licensed firearms dealer. Like there's no way that you're going to walk into your local gun store or into a Walmart or anything and buy any sort of gun and walk out with it without signing papers and registering it, things like that. Not going to happen. No one is going to do that for you. There's no incentive for a licensed dealer to do that. What gets sticky is private sales. And in most states, and I don't know every state, but like in most states, private sales are not required to be registered, which which means crazy to me. And it's been that way for forever. Like I do, we went through my, my foster son just bought his first car and we went, we had to like, you have to get the title and that title has everyone who's owned it beforehand on it. Like the amount of effort you have to go through to register a fucking car and pay, you have to fucking pay (laughs) so much money too dude like i know it's crazy that you can just like sell a gun in cash and it could that could change hands eight times and it's still registered in your name and you are no and under no legal obligation to re-register it at any point but cars you have to go through hell to to do that yeah so like that's one of the things so i the reason i wanted to bring that up though is not to just point out how how i think i think that's shitty and stupid i think that should be changed i think you should have to register a gun in your name that's just an opinion of mine you can push back on that in a second if you want to but i do (laughs) want to say that you you're the point that you made that i think is should be well noted by everybody who wants to anyone who wants to put a ban on guns and why in a culture like ours it's going to be difficult is whatever you ban you can't track you can't track it down there's no tracking down most of the guns in this country at this point, probably the, the best you could do is start tracking them now and i would you know like years ago i would have pushed back on the idea of like registering every gun and stuff and you know what i mean you could even if we're just like let's just talk about the important ones right you got pistols which in a lot of states, you do have to register purchase, even private sale purchases of pistols. Like okay. in Michigan, when I lived there, I bought some pistols from private dealers or pr- not private dealers, private owners. And you had to go to the sheriff's office where they would do a background check. They'd issue a per- itch- They would issue you a purchase permit with all your information on there and stuff. You had a couple of days to go make that purchase. You know, and if you didn't make it, it was no big deal. But like, it didn't last forever. You had like okay. less than a week to go purchase that that firearm, right? And then you had to both both you and the seller had to bring back the paperwork to the sheriff's. Well, maybe it was just the purchase. Regardless, you had to take back the paperwork to the sheriff to show that you had sold it and who you had sold it to and stuff like that. And was it a pain? Yeah, I mean, some guys. I mean, they they. I mean, I, you know, work around mechanics all the time. There's a lot of mechanics that just flip cars left and right. And there's a lot of guys that do that with guns too, or they buy something and then they're like, "Ah, I'm bored with it. And they trade it off on something else. There's a ton. I mean, these like private sale purchases, they're happening 
everywhere all the time in massive numbers, right? So it's not like this is something that, you know, every private sale purchases some nefarious thing like, and that's what's tough about some of the gun stuff is like the overwhelming majority, 99.9% of these are legit and it's just normal people and there's nothing nefarious about it. But if we had paperwork on some of these guns, it would make it a lot easier to track what's going on with some, you know, that's a simple measure that wouldn't necessarily stop a mass shooting or an act of terrorism, like what happened in Texas this week, but it would help out a lot with like normal everyday crime and gang violence and all of that kind of stuff. And I I'll tell you, you know, there is a, there's a market for guns that are not registered again, most of which is not like anything nefarious is just people. They don't want registration paperwork on it, but like, (laughs) <laughs> in michigan Dude, I, I just think it's so funny like to me i go who cares i don't want registration paperwork on my car i just but i get it it's like mm-hmm. a cultural thing it's like uh you know if the government ever tries to take them they won't know that you got it sort of deal but like you know in michigan where they had this paperwork procedure in place for pistols you are not going to find anyone who's going to sell you a pistol that's registered in their name without going through that paperwork process. They are not going to do it. Yeah. And the fact that you would ask for that or try to convince them not to do the paperwork on it is it's like all sorts of alarm bells. They're like, well, what are you going to use it for? Are you going to go commit a crime with this thing? It's registered in my name. It comes back to me. But, you know, like I told you, I mean, I had a, uh, I had a rifle that I bought a number of years ago and I didn't want it anymore. I wanted to buy a a motorcycle. So I posted it on like a firearms classified ad on or a website guy messaged me. I met him in a parking lot. Nice dude, exchanged cash, gave him the gun off. It goes, it could have been sold. It could have been bought and sold 25 times between when I had it and, and, and where it is now, it's still registered in my name and it's out there somewhere. And there's no, there's no legal obligation and there's no framework for having that mm-hmm. registration stuff flipped around. So that's the thing that you have to remember is like, you know, these ideas about like, like Beto work talking about like banning assault weapons and confiscating them and stuff. You will never get these things out of people's hands and you have no way of doing it because all they have to do is say, I sold that. I sold that five years yeah. ago. So then you have to make the difficult decision of whether or not you and you could, you could do this, uh, can call it a crime to own them. So that anytime they showed up or you, you know, somebody gets arrested for, oh, okay. Domestic assault, right? Oh, we got to go and deal with a domestic assault charge. Well, now you have probable cause to like search the house. Maybe you find an assault rifle. Now this guy's, a, a, it's a federal, like you have to make the decision whether or not you want to domestic assault probably a bad example because most people would be like yeah fuck that guy who cares sure but well it's uh, like it's like a felon having a handgun yeah you know they're not allowed to have one i mean it's it's a it's a way to get them into the police station you know if you have a a reason to confront them about it in the first place but by and large you know it's gonna be too late by the time you get there yeah but anyway i I guess it's tough it's despair (laughs) <laughs> My point is like you made a good point about how like this is just obviously complicated that like you can't just do a gun roundup because everyone's got their guns in their name and you know who owns what. It's this is a, a I don't know it's a dark road that we have to traverse. Uh, I I am for one uh, 
and I don't, you aren't either, I know from our conversations, we're not to throw your hands up and say it's hopeless, do nothing kind. Like, I think there's things to do. And those things might not have stopped this shooting in Texas, but maybe it would have stopped a different one. And maybe it would reduce the number of suicides. Maybe it would, I don't know. Uh, I don't think you should look at one incident and say, well, all the measures on the table wouldn't have stopped it. Therefore, we shouldn't do it because this would have still happened. That's still, that's shitty. Exactly. Uh, we also know that there's a plenty of reasons why this kid never should have been able to walk into walk into a store and a, a gun shop and actually buy something. There's just there's a lot of reasons why he shouldn't have. I would argue that if you can't buy cigarettes or alcohol, then you shouldn't probably be able to buy a gun either. If they, and- if, if they don't trust you with drinking or cigarettes, I don't trust you with a gun. I don't. And when you look at the number of shootings that are committed by people under 21, maybe that's a crime you don't commit when you're over 21 as much. Sure, certainly it happens, but so many of the ones that happen are when they're 18. Uh, and you don't see that happening in places where it's is frequently in places where people are 21 and then go out and buy a gun. I'm not sure what changes. I'm not sure why that it, it could be happens. It could just it's be just coincidental. A fully developed person at that yeah. point. You know? So I just I I don't I think that is a very reasonable position to have, uh, but either way we're not geniuses. I think so on this, too. So. I think that it's one of the one of the issues about like the the divisive you know rhetoric on both sides of this is it just shuts down any chance of finding some sort of middle ground where we could put some of those small pieces in place. That would help create a more accountable framework yeah, for this. Because we're stuck in do nothingville when everyone goes compromise is murder or something like that. Like if you're if you can't, just not how democracy works, and it sucks. I had that problem with people who were like Bernie or bust. It's like that's fine. I wanted Bernie as much as the next guy, but I'm not I'm not willing to go bust because there's too much at stake if you just decide to like burn shit to the ground or refuse to compromise because you didn't get everything you want. Just, we don't live in a world where everyone believes the same shit, but if we can get a little bit closer to getting what we want, bring a few more people over the side that you're on, maybe you can actually by having conversations and not maybe just writing off people entirely because they think differently. I don't know. We're just at this weird cultural crossroads where I don't, I'm not confident things are going to improve. I think with the, the rhetoric on both sides and this, as much as I, I think one side's more right than the other, it's like, I, I feel more interested in doing something to the point where not getting everything you want is better than getting nothing in a political climate where compromise is considered weakness or concession. I, I just, I don't see a lot happening and that's what's really frustrating. But yeah, a hundred percent. I don't know where else to go with this. I we weren't planning on doing a very long intro, so I don't know if you want. If you have any last thought on it, go ahead. And I don't want to just like shut you out. So if you have a, anything else you want to say, go for it. But I just think like we when we talked to um, to Matt Molinaro the other day, uh, we talked a little bit about you know what. what if you grew up in, in super conservative evangelicalism, you were probably homophobic, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't like arguments or, you know, shaming or anything like that, that brought you out of that hardened position. It was meeting reasonable, rational people that just made it impossible for you to think those ugly things about 
you know, gay people or trans people or whatever it is anymore because you know somebody who's a great person who's one, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that changes people's minds and that pulls them out of that kind of stuff. And I think that that same thing goes for all of this stuff. I, I mean, it's taking a hardened position and screaming at the other side is sometimes it feels therapeutic and it's a pretty reason, you know, it's an understandable reaction to the awful things that are happening. But I think like we get closer to a solution or at least an environment that helps prevent these situations by having those like good faith conversations with people who are, are different than us, you know, yeah. find common ground, find a middle point, And for God's sake, you better vote in November. (laughs) Don't want to hear how, oh, I was busy or, oh, I just didn't feel like it or, oh, it doesn't matter anyways, blah, blah, blah. Like you got time, get registered, get a mail-in ballot, get an absentee, whatever you got to do, you better vote because the excuses come, uh, you know, November 5th or whatever it is. It's just not going to cut it at this point. Like be an adult, go get a... Go get registered and vote. Yeah. All right. Well, with all that being said, uh, our guest is Charles McBride. Yeah, you guys have heard him before. Uh, we had him on because we, what? I don't know, actually, how did I find him? I guess TikTok, like everybody else. Um, but he had just a great story. Uh, and we, he's very intelligent. It's also, it's so weird talking to someone who just knows so much more than you, uh, where you're like, you know, pulling out dates and events and all sorts of things that have happened throughout world history. And you're just like, yeah, I'll, I'll nod my head and, like, oh, I heard about that one time. But he's you know a very smart, very when, well-read guy. When you hear about it, you're like, oh, I remember that. Versus just being able to pull that information out of your ass at any point uh, are two different things. And he's just such a smart, smart guy. It's, we really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, and we were especially excited to talk to him again because he spent uh, six weeks in Ukraine and doing some cool shit. And we didn't get as much into the cool shit that he did that we wanted to, uh, because we ended up soaking up a lot of our time, just talking about the situation over there in general. Uh, but I think it was an awesome conversation. I learned a lot from hearing his takes on things, what he learned just from being over there, what he understands just from having a good understanding of world history. Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to say about it. I don't know if you have anything you want to add, Casey, but... Yeah, just that, like, um, towards the end especially, Charles talks about the organization that he worked with called yeah, Mission yeah. Kharkiv, and their entire mission is to deliver life-saving medication and treatment to the people who are, like, the the, the tertiary victims of the war in Ukraine that's going on. Uh, you know, this isn't battlefield medicine and stuff for the soldiers that are fighting, but you got to think about like the supply chain disruptions and the shortages and the interruptions and in travel and stuff like that, that have affected people with, you know, life-threatening illnesses or, or, uh, you know, chronic ailments and things like that. Even, even stuff as simple as like, you know, a, a person who needs insulin shots. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people in that boat that are not able to get what they need because of the ongoing fighting and blockades and all that kind of stuff. So Mission Kharkiv is is uh, 
dedicated to getting those medications into those people's hands. Charles talks a little bit about it and goes into more depth about the things that he did with them, but it's an impressive organization. He vouches for them a hundred percent. If you're, you know, if you, I, I know a lot of us wanted to know how to help with, uh, with what yeah. was going on in Ukraine and it's just tough, you know, there's so many organizations and who does what and how do you know it's actually going to be used towards good stuff. Um, this organization's the real deal. And, you know, if you, uh, if you are able to make a donation, we're going to include a link in the description of the episode. Uh, it would be much appreciated and, and your dollars are going towards putting those medications in people's hands, which is a, it's a big deal, man. There's just a lot of people affected by what's going on over there. I think he said 12 million people have been displaced yeah throughout the course of the you know the last few months it's it's huge the scope yeah, of this it, thing is insane and even when the war dies down uh if russia can ever admit defeat the ramifications from what's happened over the past few months they're here for a while that's not going anywhere that it's going to go on a long time this is going to be something that i mean this this could go years and years. I mean, that, that, you know, there's been fighting in Eastern Ukraine since 2014. So there's no reason to expect that this is going to wrap up any sooner or, or that there's a, a clear end in sight. So it's a big deal to go and help some of these people that are struggling to survive in that environment. So with that in mind, enjoy our conversation with Charles McBride. Okay, everyone, we are back with our guest, Charles McBride. Uh, Charles, you, hey, you're back in California, is that right? Yep, I'm sunny Los Angeles. Last time we spoke, you were holing up at the rents, I believe, for a little middle of the pandemic or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you, you got, so anyway, for the listeners, uh, Charles has spent, the, how, what, a month? You spent a little over a month, a couple months in the Ukraine? Six weeks, yeah. Okay. Yeah, dude, I, seeing what you were posting and kind of what had been going on and how you had seen it, there's a lot that's been said uh, and a lot of different talking points around what's kind of going on there. Um, so I figured it'd be really cool to, one, talk to you again because we had such a great time with you last time and also to get your thoughts and take on some of it and just to hear about what it was like, what your experience was. So first of all, I'm, how the heck did that like kick off? Um, did you go by yourself with a group? Like, how did you even get yourself situated to end up there? Yeah. Um, yes, that was, that was an interesting sort of process. I did go by myself. Uh, I did not go without help. I had sort of a network of people who was assisting me. Um, but I, I did not go formally attached to any sort of group or organization, um, which I think was a bit easier to a degree. Um, because once you get past, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Just, yeah. Well, maybe it was more difficult. I'm, I'm not actually sure. <laughs> but I, um, yeah, no, I basically, as soon as the war kicked off, I just felt this strong pull to go over there and help. Um, which I think is just kind of an extension of like the work that I've done over the past four years, NGO, nonprofit work, um, vulnerable populations, that sort of stuff. I just, it tugs at my heart and, um, you know, being a history major and understanding sort of the, the geopolitical significance of the region and what a big deal this was, the fact that this is the closest any of us in our lives have been to nuclear war, to general war in Europe. Um, it's not, not an insignificant thing, you know. Yeah, our, yeah. Lives are, our lives for three generations have been totally defined 
by the overwhelming desire to avoid war in Europe, you know, um, because of the second world war. So the fact that we were opening that can of worms, just kind of crazy. Um, it didn't feel like, okay. So from my perspective, um, I like, there was that like looming fear, like there's a, what are we going to do if this happens? Um, obviously a lot of that had to do with their involvement or lack thereof in NATO, but like, I, I wasn't, I, I never felt like this fee, this like, oh shit, we're about to, the U S might go to war, but that's probably maybe not the right feeling. Like, it sounds like you're talking about its geopolitical significance. Uh, and obviously to the U S um, I don't know what you want to say or can say about what that is. Uh, but maybe that might help set the stage for why it, it looked so precarious, especially maybe the, the more, you know, as opposed to someone like me. Yeah. Learned it well after the fact that things were a lot more serious than I uh, had re- originally thought. Yeah, no, things are very serious. And it's also perfectly understandable that people don't understand that. I think it would it would take um, a lot of specific knowledge related to that region to for people to understand the gravity of that situation. So to put it in perspective, the day that I arrived, there was a caliber missile strike at um, Yavarov base, which was sort of the incoming base for a lot of the foreign legion fighters um and it was incredibly destructive um some of the worst casualties of the war in terms of a single strike and that was you know only a few kilometers from the polish border and the russians are very bad shots um had that missile landed a couple of miles west it would have triggered nato's article 5 and every single member of nato would then be involved in a war with russia jesus so world yeah, war three that- yeah proximity to Poland seems like that's the, that's the most sensitive aspect of all of this, you know, in terms of like a flashpoint event. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, and this entire time the Kremlin has been like, Oh, by the way, we're coming for Poland next, which is mostly just saber rattling because they really? now know that they, they don't even have the capability to carry out a war in Ukraine. There's no way they could take on all of NATO. <laughs> Yeah, which I think that was one of the most surprising outcomes of all of this. I I had been con- thoroughly convinced that Russia was like a world superpower, and the fact that things didn't go as expected was pretty shocking. Yeah, I think especially since like when they did this in 2014, it was pretty easy for them. Like they kind of that's rolled right. Into, yeah, yeah, they rolled into Crimea, they rolled into Donbas and Luhansk, and they trotted out this propaganda campaign of, oh, we're liberating Russian-speaking territories and all this sort of stuff. I think the huge difference of that is the Ukrainian army, the difference that eight years has made between 2014 and 2022, is wild. Um, Ukraine, oh, really? When, in 2014, Ukraine had Soviet surplus. They had ammunition that was bad. They had rations that were expired. You know, They had trucks that didn't work and tanks that didn't work. A lot of the same issues that Russia's having now. Um, and so they got their asses handed to them in some ways. I mean, that's not to say like the Ukrainians have always put up a, a brave defense, you know, in the Donbass war, but that taught them this lesson, which is that like, if you don't have the military capability to defend yourself at a peer level with your neighbor, then they can just come in every couple of years with some excuse and take a chunk out of your country. Um, and so that's when the U S and the United Kingdom really started to pay attention to Ukraine, um, started training their troops. One of the things that they did was to essentially require that every every member of the Ukrainian armed forces spend time in 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 the Donbass region um, where the war with Russia and Ukrainian separatists was going on. Um, so that means that when Russia invaded in 2022, 
about 60 to 70 percent of Ukrainian armed forces had seen active combat in in the Donbass, as compared to about 12 percent of Russian forces, mostly pilots who had seen combat in Syria. Oh, wow. So, so the Russian forces that went in were a lot of conscripts, too, right? I mean, a lot of them. I mean, I, there was some there's some there's some very, you know, professional units and stuff like that. But it really depends on where you were and where they were coming from. Um, a lot of the early waves were just like, yeah, like you said, conscripts who were sent there without with little preparation. They were brought all the way from Siberia. Um, you know, it's they, they there wasn't a lot of professionalism in terms of the rollout. Um, I mean, the way that this basically they tried to do a blitzkrieg, but the way that a blitzkrieg works is it requires echelons. You have sort of your front echelon um, and then your rear echelon. And the way it works, so for instance, in the Nazi German invasion of France, you would have the initial wave is just streaking across the entire country. And then you have the second wave behind them, which is like the cleanup crew. They're going house to house and making sure that like nobody's there and, you know, rounding up prisoners and that sort of stuff. But they're not delaying the onward march of the, the initial columns. And then you have the third echelon, which is the supply um, echelon. And they're the ones who are responsible for provisioning everybody and you know, laying down the rebuilding the bridges and laying down the rails and set, clearing the roads and that sort of stuff. Russia only had one echelon. <laughs> like they tried to do this with one <laughs> echelon and they couldn't even, I mean, by like the first week, their guys were like hungry and running out of fuel and all this sort of stuff. I, I which is just it speaks to the corruption and arrogance of the Russian military machine. Um, but yeah, it, part of it is also has to do with the difference between the way that Russia structures their uh, military command and control versus the way that Western countries do. So like American military culture is all about empowering people at the individual level and in the lowest levels. So, I mean, every grunt that goes into combat has an array of decisions that he or she can make um, that they are directly empowered to do. So they have autonomy to make certain decisions up to a point before they have to like ask the opinion okay. of their officer. And, and that is structured all the way up to the joint chiefs. Um, whereas in Russia, they have this much more Soviet mentality, which is you don't do anything without getting permission first. Otherwise you get in a lot of trouble. So, so you combine poor provisioning and poor planning with a military culture that emphasizes sitting around and waiting until you're told what to do. Um, and then when you have communication breakdowns and that sort of stuff, that's not a great combination. You're probably like severely limiting the creativity of the forces on the ground then too, I would imagine. Like they they can't make split second decisions. And even if yeah. they even if they had to in the moment, they're just really not equipped to do it, you know, from a mental standpoint. Yeah, not just equipped outside but the culture. Not equipped and also if you're stuck sitting there weighing the uh, the consequences of your actions too, that's gonna even inhibit creativity even more. Not that we're rooting for their creative juices to get flowing or anything but i can see the problems there yeah i mean we're um in an aspect of this is a lot of the soldiers didn't even know that they were supposed to be invading ukraine they thought that they were doing you know sort of a border operation um like yeah. a training mission right yeah a training mission yeah and then they were given live ammunition and sent across the ukrainian border and next thing they know they're getting shot out with tanks so <laughs> jesus christ i can't even imagine what yeah. that it's like how do you, yeah, I mean, that's the epitome of poor planning, right? Did they think, do you think there was a reason for that? Did they want to keep people in the dark before they would send them over for the sake of maybe there'd be some, 
I, I can't imagine lower level resistance given the way that you talked about their military being structured. It seems such a like a, such a crazy way to yeah initiate. Well, so I mean, the U.S. military and the or in NATO militaries they they have they have ways of sort of siloing information and making sure that it doesn't leak out. So like an invasion plan, for instance, they might tell, they might tell some people, oh, you're going to be on a training mission, you know, in this region. And, and then, but then they would, they would prep them and be like, okay, actually you're going to be invading Iraq, you know, and here is, here is your objectives, your immediate objectives. Um, here's everything that you need to know about this. Now go out and do that. I think I, I could not envision a situation in which a NATO military sent its troops unknowingly into battle that's just bizarre um yeah, yeah. but that's not God, i mean that's not the russian way um yeah yeah so, so go ahead, i was go. listening to this podcast the other day where they were talking about the the chechen war you familiar with that whole yeah. incident it's it's crazy listening and this was something that was made like several years ago so it wasn't made with like the current situation in mind you know where right. people have this tendency to sort of like reinterpret things according to the narrative that we're looking at today. But, you know, and when they were talking about like how this whole thing went down, it's, it, it sounds like remarkably similar to what happened in Ukraine this year. I mean, like the, just like the, I mean, one of the reasons that they cited for like that whole thing going as far South as it did was there's just no buy-in from the, from the forces on the ground for the mission. Like there's, there's just very little um, conviction about what they're there to do and risk their lives for and all that stuff by the, you know, the troops that are actually like holding the rifle on the front line. And it seemed like it's hard to know like what's going on from here because right from the get go, like it, it felt like the media coverage we were getting about the war was like idealistic and kind of rose colored glasses. But it does seem like that's one of the problems that they that they faced is that the the guys on the ground are just like, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah, yeah, they're huge morale issues. Um, and I think it's interesting that the point you bring up, like people who were super surprised by Russia's performance, I don't think we're paying a lot of attention to like the Second Chechen War or the Russian invasion of Georgia um, because they ran into all of the same command and control supply issues. Like their radios weren't working in Georgia and their tanks and trucks were getting stuck in the mud all over the place. and They were just leaving them. So like, I think a lot of the, 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 I think the issue is that I think a lot of American intelligence had assumed that they had learned lessons from those wars in the way that like we would learn from failures in Afghanistan and Iraq and adapt to them in the way that the Ukrainians learned from the failure in Donbass and Crimea, but they just didn't like, the Russians only kind of have one thing now, which is pound a city into oblivion and send people in later. And it was the fact that they violated that um, in this conflict, in this war, that that's kind of why they got their shit rocked. Like they sent paratroopers into Kiev, you know, on like the first or second day of the war. Um, they really thought that didn't they could pan just out. go in and like, yeah, no, it didn't. And so you, you really about, so once it hit like the one one month mark and it was clear that Ukrainian forces were just generally stopping the Russian advance. They pulled back and started doing the thing that they did in Aleppo and in Grozny. And they just started bombing the shit out of these places and then waiting for them. That's what they did in Mariupol. They just annihilated the entire city, 90% of the buildings. They just flattened them and then marched in as Oof. victors. Um, That's so fucking crazy. I, yeah. 
I think that's one of the craziest things about just war in general. Like, I mean, you can see those pictures, like relating to the Middle East, right? You can see pictures of like, you know, pre 80s Middle East where you're like gorgeous. And then you look at everything since, you know, even our invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just like what what happens when you bomb it? It's like now you don't have like if particularly strange the takeover, right? Like Russia's like, we want this. So the idea of just bombing the shit out of something and not preserving it in any way to the point where it's almost effectively useless as part of your economy afterwards. It yeah. seems so wild. Uh, I mean, I get I don't agree with it. I think it what played out in the Middle East was egregious, but you get why dropping bombs on a place you don't want to make your own is an effective strategy to winning a pseudo war. But it's like what happened in Ukraine just seems insane. Like it, it, you're, you're not only like you're, they're not only struggling to take it, but after you bomb it and then you take it, that's like a net negative. Like you've wasted all this time and energy and resources to take it. And now you have something that's going to be a leech on your economy. Especially when like the entire um, <laughs> point of your sort of invasion is this idea of like, oh, you're liberating these areas to be right, right, <laughs> because they're Russian, like because they're Russian, and that's something that we didn't even like. We had this line about, oh, we're bringing freedom to Iraq, freedom to Afghanistan, which was bullshit. But like, we weren't trying to say these are American cities and we're going to liberate the civilians inside of them because they're American, which is like that's literally the Russian line, like. We're going to bomb the yeah, shit yeah. out of Kharkiv. You know, like, if you want Kharkiv to be a Russian city, then maybe don't flatten it. You know, like, there's a <laughs> lot of people in Kharkiv that were sympathetic to Russia before the war. And that, that sympathy is completely um, evaporated. Also, I want to be clear. Yeah. Like, the United States and the coalition forces in, in Iraq and Afghanistan did this, too. I mean, we, we bombed the shit out of Baghdad. We bombed the shit out of all these different places. Oh, yeah. Um, mostly just hospitals and weddings though (laughs) well that's the drone strikes that's ongoing (laughs) but um, so like we definitely did that too but the the point is that like the Russians that's really the only thing they can do because they they don't they don't seem to have they don't seem to have the ability to create sort of like a a unified invasion plan that resembles anything like what you'd see in a nation in like a a a western sort of um, movement but yeah, I mean, like, I've been thinking about the fact, like, when we went to Afghanistan and we went into Iraq, like, we had McDonald's and Burger King set up, you know, within, like, weeks. We spent $7 billion a year just on the air conditioning for our facilities so that our guys could keep cool. You know, like, the logistics Ugh. are a huge aspect of warfare, and it's something that the United States has, has really gotten down well. Um, yeah. As opposed to other superpowers. And part of that it's is funny because like Russia's going back to World War One standards of <laughs> their yeah. military. No, they are. They're like shooting their own wounded and just like giving out randoms. Like the, the ones that the, the pictures that may like horrify me are the ones of guys who like lost their legs or arms and stuff, and they like post a picture of their like compensation package from the Russian government, um, and it's like a thing of buckwheat, a couple of rubles. And then like a postcard with Vladimir Putin's face. And it's just oh like, God. oh my God. <laughs> it feels yeah. like a political cartoon. It literally is. And you see that and you know, they had all these photos of like, you know, the mothers of like Chechen soldiers or the guys from Siberia who had been killed. And yeah, they just like posting pictures of like a couple cans of soup and, you know, a bag of buckwheat. And you're just like, oh my God, this, 
this country is the trailer park of the world. It's a trailer park with nuclear weapons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you say that, but I'm looking behind you and I bet I bet a, a hundred bucks you don't have a box of buckwheat in your apartment. That's true. I'm I'm really short on buckwheat, you know. What's the going rate for buckwheat in uh USD these days? I don't know. I'm not well, sure. It's it, I'm sure it's inflated. Yeah, I know. Every yeah. inflation, it's everywhere, right? <laughs> it is. So what okay, so I think what's what's what was tough to look at from the beginning and, and really get a feel for was like the intent and motivation behind some of the stuff that was happening over there. Like you know, because I feel like our media immediately like took the the line that like this is some sort of personal vanity project for Putin before he dies, and he's got you know these aspirations of restoring the the Russian Empire and stuff. And I mean, I I'm sure that there's something to that, but I mean, is this is from what you see, from what you've looked at, and stuff like that. Is this is that a primary factor? Is this like in response to NATO expansion? Is it you know this true like uh, strange idea that you know they're somehow owed this territory in Ukraine and it's and it is like some sort of traditional Russian play? I mean, what what do you think from what you've seen and heard? So I think it's really easy for Westerners to like want to believe this nice fiction that like big bad Putin is the reason this is happening. Um, and that the poor innocent Russians are oppressed by their own government and, and the poor innocent Russians, well, the poor Russians are oppressed by their own government, but um, that does not mean that there's a lack of enthusiasm towards the extermination of Ukraine. I think it's, it's really important for people to realize um, that the general reaction in Russia, and even I would say, among Russian-speaking people in the Russian diaspora elsewhere in the world is either one of enthusiasm or of apathy. Um, the degree to which Russians are standing up for the autonomy of Ukraine is very limited. And that is because of a thousand-year history of, of relations between the two. And Russia has always had this sort of exterminationist policy towards Ukraine. Um, Ukraine only ever had autonomy in Russia's eyes as a part of the Russian empire. That's why, like, it's funny, you started out this um, this podcast and you referenced the Ukraine. Don't say that to any Ukrainians because they'll get really pissed because the Ukraine okay. is a uh, is sort of how Russia would, you know, refer to a region that was part of its empire or a region that was a part uh, of the Soviet Union. Okay. Whereas Ukraine, you know, singularly is, um, that is, that is the identity of the nation which has been formed you know, first in the independence war, and then secondly, in this, what I would say, the second independence war, um, you know, where, where they are an autonomous entity called Ukraine, not a region of the Russian empire. Gotcha. Um, it's kind of funny about the the article V, though, because I would say the United States, of but you wouldn't say like the France, like it is right, funny yeah. how that works. Uh, but yeah. maybe because uh, the United States indicates a collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't but, say yeah, the no, Ameri- I think that's an you wouldn't say point. the America though, you know. I mean grammatically. Right. Yeah. That's true. So Ukraine, got it. Uh right. I will <laughs> consider that for future reference to Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. So that's not to say that there are not lots of brave Russians who stood up for Ukraine or opposed the war and that sort of stuff, but um, you know, even Russia's opposition, like Alexei Navalny, he doesn't believe in autonomy for Crimea. 
you know, he doesn't believe that that's a part of Ukraine. So, like, if you're talking about the liberal, progressive opposition to Putin's autocratic right-wing regime, it's still composed of a bunch of people who believe that Ukraine is more or less a Russian vassal state at most. Um, and that's why there was just, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Putin's um, special military operation to bring the wayward child of Ukraine back into the fold. But you know, the way that Russians talk about Ukraine is generally disgusting, gross, and often approaches annihilationist or exterminationist rhetoric. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they've almost done that before. Yeah. What, did they starve six million of them? Yeah, yeah, during the Holodomor. Yeah. That's the other thing I was curious about is like, depending on who you're listening to, you know, some people paint Ukraine as just being full of, you know, Russian sympathizers and stuff, at least up to this point, you know, where it, where the invasion and all that stuff. But like during 2014 and the like color revolution and stuff, you know, the, the way it was always framed is that there's like a large contingent of uh, Russian loyalists inside the country. And yeah, it almost feels like it's been presented as though it's like a 60, 40 split, if not 50, 50. Yeah. And that was, that was always very generous split and one that was hyped up by the Kremlin. You know, this whole idea of like, oh, we're protecting Russian speakers and that sort of thing. It's it is very complicated because even in the Donbass war, there are portions of eastern Ukraine who consist, you know, which consists primarily of Russian speaking populations, many of whom were sympathetic to Putin. Um, and that is that remains complicated because in the intervening eight years, a lot of the people who were sympathetic to Ukraine rather than to Russia left those regions and went to the West even though they are not culturally Western Ukrainian. So like you can't gloss over these things by like falling into the nationalist trap of just, oh, everyone was always Ukrainian. That's fine. Like, no, you have to deal seriously with the fact that there are populations within Ukraine um, who are sympathetic to Russia. And you also need to deal with the fact that that's a much tinier population now than it was eight years ago. Um, A lot of that was a holdover from the Soviet era where you have this, you know, 75 years of propaganda regarding, you know, following on top of however many years of czarist propaganda about the brotherhood of Ukrainian and Russian people. Um, and that was that has been revealed to be a fiction. You know, it was really interesting talking to the older Ukrainians who had like served in the Red Army and that sort of stuff. And so many of them were just shocked. Like I would say like boomer Ukrainians, you know, they were just like, I can't believe this. Russia's our brother. Why would they do this to us? That sort of stuff. Speaking to some some of my friends who fled from Kharkiv, which is a city on the on the border with Russia, it's about twelve kilometers from Russia, um, and they were saying that like their parents had been pro-Russian up until the war, and now they were like, well, the Russians are attacking us. I don't like this, and and it was really interesting because there are whole regions of Ukraine which um, would have would have Russian as like their civic language in terms of how. Uh, the government functions, like the city councils, that sort of stuff, official documents we drafted in Russian, everything. And a lot of those places recently started voluntarily voluntarily changing that to Ukrainian. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's kind of interesting. Like the, the war sort of created even among the, the supposed, the Russian speaking populations, which is supposedly sympathetic to, to Moscow. Um, there's this sort of, there's this uh, movement towards a greater Ukrainian identity um, among them. It's also an interesting phenomenon. Um, 
there was an anthropologist and oh yeah yeah the anthropologist david graber talks about um how identities are formed in terms of contrast and especially under persecution and it's really interesting because i've talked to a lot of ukrainians who are like yeah i didn't give a fuck about any of this shit i didn't give a fuck about ukrainian culture really or like Tereshchenko, or you know sort of Kievan culture or, you know, various Ukrainian forms of, of, of dress or traditions um, until 2014, until the color revolution and, and the invasion. And then after that, I started to like wear the Shivanka to parties or weddings, or I started to, you know, look into Ukrainian folk music or whatever it happens to be. Sort of, it took, sometimes it takes like your identity being threatened for you to realize you have one at all. And I think the Ukrainians have sort of realized that. And it's the same with like a lot of the Russian speaking populations to the East. They're like, you know what? I am Ukrainian. Like I live here. We're being attacked. Um, so I'm going to be Ukrainian. And there's a lot more because the, like a lot of that, those issues were just massively exacerbated by Russia. Like imagine all of the, the detentions in our country, except that like to add to that, Britain was constantly paying billions and billions of dollars and like, buying out politicians to say that, oh, you guys are actually all British anyways. Like you're all just one British family. It's all the Commonwealth, you know, like add that into our mix of like crazy stuff in this country. And you had a world superpower telling your population that it actually belongs to it and buying out politicians with gas money and all this sort of stuff. And, yeah. and well, I mean, I guess we uh, did fight a war with Britain over that a few hundred years ago. We <laughs> so did. Like, yeah, we did. <laughs> but I guess that's something we can di- not directly sympathize with since we're so far removed from it, but right. certainly have been taught about it plenty in our history. Yeah, and that's one of the things that people don't realize when uh, yeah, everyone's like, oh, Ukraine's a corrupt country. Oh, it's a developing country, all this sort of stuff. A lot of Ukraine's development in the post-Soviet era has been significantly hampered by, like, a lot of that corruption comes from Russian interference. I mean, we know we, we've started to feel what it feels like for the Russians to play a heavy hand in our internal affairs. Um, and that has led to, you know, sort of corruption and backroom dealing and, you know, all this crazy stuff that happened during the Trump administration. Um, so the Russians loom large in our politics. Imagine being their neighbor and much smaller than them. So I think it's I think a lot of people are realizing that a lot of the problems that Ukraine had in terms of developing as sort of a modern Western liberal nation were a direct result of Russia's constant tendency to drag them back into the fold. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I, I think your point about identity is really important too in the way that it had, like that people didn't care about their identity so much until there was pressure put on them. And it, made, it instantly made me think of after uh, September 11th, right here, where everyone was ultra patriotic all that and you i mean that's how you got the fucking patriot act approved yeah. is like as as soon as there is that outside force it, people do kind of double down on their collective identity a lot most a lot right. of sense. Uh, yeah. i think something that might fall flat on some listeners ears uh that i think we should spend a, just a few minutes kind of getting into is if that's even possible is the the word color revolution right i don't know that that's necessarily something that i don't know how I'm only recently familiar to it, so I feel like maybe just explaining what the color revolution was and why it's important might be helpful in kind of understanding the the landscape in which Russia invaded. Yeah, so the I mean the color revolution was uh, it's actually not really so that's it's kind of there was a variety of protests against sort of 
former Soviet Union governments, etc., from about 2004 all the way up till kind of the Maidan revolution in um, 2014. But in terms of Maidan, that's kind of the one that was this really defining um, moment in, in Ukrainian-Russian relations. Um, and it's actually what essentially triggered the invasion of um, the Donbass. Um, so it was called the Revolution of, of Dignity, and it was an attempt by the, the Ukrainian people to oust essentially a toady of, um, of Vladimir Putin called Viktor Yanukovych and his regime, which was kind of taking Ukraine off of this Eurocentric path and bringing them back onto sort of a, a Russo-centric path. And um, that just was not met well. So there was this broad sort of public uprising um, in response to that, which led to the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych and the uh, sort of re reemerging of, of a strong sort of unifying Ukrainian identity. And that's when a lot of like the young people really got involved in this sort of stuff. It, I would say, I would say Maidan was like the equivalent of sort of the George Floyd moment for a, a whole generation of Ukrainians okay. in terms of awakening their political consciousness. You talk to a lot of Americans who are like Gen Zers who were more or less like not super invested in politics. And then come 2020 COVID hits and something like that. And they're like, Oh, well I might go to this, this guy got killed. I might go to this protest. And you know, it might be something where it's like, you just wanted to do that because you want to get the Instagram or whatever. And then you get tear gassed by a cop and you know, and then you're questioning, like, <laughs> right. how is this? This is weird, you know. And then you start digging into this, and you're educating yourself, and then you're getting politically charged, and um, and so your political consciousness forms in this sort of electric moment of of what I, I call them the uprisings. Like, I, I think the George Floyd moment was genuinely popular uprisings against a government which just deeply failed its people, um, rather than riots or protests. I, I think it's it's important to say that this is a a broader social movement that had little to do with, you know, what happened to George Floyd um, and a lot more to do with sort of general uh, sentiment of being wronged by the government and demanding more. Um, And I think that both the lockdown protests and the George Floyd protests were a result of that. Um, Talk about people sort of simmering in their houses for months on end because of COVID while also being deeply let down by their governments. Um, and then they just explode onto the streets. And in America, it formed pretty starkly political lines. Um, in other places, it's more general. It, it, Ukrainian politics works differently from American politics because the spectrum is not really right or left. It's more like pro or anti-Russia. Um, so okay. wh- wh- where you stand in terms of social programs or military funding or all that sort of stuff tends to be less important than like your stance on Russia. Uh, and that was a complicated thing for a while up until this point where now it's like, if you're pro Russia, like get the fuck out, you know, they're invading us. Um, but that's been a battle, you know, ever since Ukraine gained its independence, this political spectrum has essentially been like, okay, do we enter the, the sort of Russian zone of cultural influence or do we gravitate more towards Europe? And for Ukraine, that's a complicated history because there are parts of Ukraine, which are, very European. Um, you know, the Lviv region, much of Western Ukraine was owned at part or at, at, at some part, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, part of Poland, part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, 
So um, it's a very, you go to Lviv and it feels like a very European city. And then you go to some parts of Eastern Ukraine, they feel more sort of, um, for lack of a better term, Russian. Um, but that's also a result of hundreds of years of Russian imperialism, including forced deportations of Ukrainians and Ukrainian-speaking people to regions in the east of Russia and replacing them with Russian speakers. So the reason there's a lot of Russian speakers in places like Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, it's because <laughs> of like all the Ukrainians that were murdered and pushed out of them and like deported to other regions of the Russian Empire and then later the Soviet Union and replaced with Russian speakers and settlers. So it's basically settler colonialism. Um, yeah. You know, from, from the Russian standpoint. Um, so everyone's talking about Russian populations in Ukraine and like you need to ask the historical question, hmm, why are they there? You know, and the sure. fact, like it, I think the most chilling aspects about this war to me, aside from the horrific stories of rape and torture, um, is the fact that they just immediately started doing the forced deportations again. It's just straight out of the Soviet playbook. And I was just horrifying for me to see that in 2022, where they're sending everyone to these filtration centers and then just like deporting them to Russia. I mean, it's their, it's just their, like their, their playbook of cultural imperialism. We're going to take you and put you in another, they did it to the Baltic states, states, you know, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands deported from those areas, most Jeez. of them dying uh, during the Soviet time. And, um, you know, obviously that happened in Ukraine as well. And so, yeah. So like the Holodomor was basically, that was the, that was the alternative to the forced deportations at the time, right? I mean, they, they starved people in place instead of shipping them out or... Well, they did both. <laughs> I mean, they, they they shipped out a lot of Ukrainians to other regions of the Soviet Union, but then they also, you know, starved large large swaths of them as well, uh, and then covered it up. So it, it feels like when talk whenever we whenever something blows up on a on a world scale like this, uh, there's like a bunch of a few different camps that form here as we try to filter through information that's coming in. Uh, as we try to process it through its historical context and the U.S.'s historical context as far as them being a world player. So, like, whenever something like this happens, there's always, like, the U.S. is the good guy fighting on the side of the good guys for liberation, and then there's, like, the U.S. is the bad guy. There's something nefarious. Why are we talking about what's going on in Ukraine versus what's going on in other parts of the world where devastating and awful things are happening constantly? Obviously, there's prop not there's obviously a it's complicated it's more complicated than just those two sides but the idea of like certainly we're going to be more invested over here in things that directly affect the u.s even if they're masked in this uh because we care mindset it's also you know the news is always dealing with a the type of news cycles that we have with our 24-hour yeah. news cycle and needing to because what we're, i mean we're not even really hearing about what's going on in Ukraine anymore. That's past. We're dealing with other yeah. shit. And it, it, it does. That also adds to the feeling that people get that there's nothing but disingenuousness applied here. Like that. It's just all pageantry or showmanship or that we care. The U S cares as much as they have something to gain. And I think that kind of ties back to what the color revolution. And as you're talking about this revolution starting, whether or not that was organic or not seems to come into play. Some people will be like, well, the U.S. had a direct hand in influencing that, and there's U.S. propaganda, but also is whatever is going on, you know, they're, they are fighting against um, 
wanting to be ruled by Russians. And I don't know. So it gets so complicated that it's hard to kind of even really piece it together. And I know that we probably can't. But as far as why it's like so why this was so concerning to the U.S., like on its face, it's something worth caring about because this shit is worth caring about as much as it is anywhere that it's happening or similar things are happening. But what, what do you think that made this so impactful for the U S and why yeah. it was worth paying attention to, or why our politicians cared? It feels yeah, like so, we must be getting something out of it <laughs> or not. Yeah, but. No, totally. And like, that's a, this is one of these things where like, I just absolutely hate the discourse on this subject on the internet. Yeah. I hate the discourse on most subjects on the internet, to be honest, but this one in particular. Um, <laughs> I don't know, Reddit, man. I've, you stir that pot once in a go? while, though. I do stir that pot. But honestly, <laughs> I, I, I'm too tired to pot stir these days, honestly. Like, I, I grow more and more tired just because I think that I've started to be... Uh, Sam, I promise I'm going to get to your question. I'm just, I'm going to wax philosophical for a second. Let's do it. I've started to see most problems in America as symptoms of a deep cultural and spiritual malaise, which has been working its way through our like social and political psyche for at least 50 years. And so I, I'm no longer interested. Yeah. I'm no longer interested in like having internet tiffs about fascism or Roe versus Wade or uh, gun control, because I think that a lot of people aren't willing to admit um, the degree to which America is just so deeply insecure and so deeply diseased in its core um, that dealing with these like tertiary, like I've tried to entirely avoid the school shooting discourse because I've done a lot of research on gun control and at least in the United States case um it's not particularly effective would not be particularly effective and the fact that we have a huge mass shooting project has less to do with ready access to firearms and more to do with the fact that we have completely abandoned whole generations of people um in terms of their mental health their physical well-being paying them living wages um giving them a sense of community and identity and then making them live their lives in this weird decaying matrix of aspirational capitalism um (laughs) yeah it's i think it has more to do with that than like i mean you used to be able to mail order like a thompson submachine gun and we didn't have school shootings back then you used to be able to 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 bring you know a quote-unquote assault rifle to school for like shooting days where they would like go out and have range and you know competitions and that sort of stuff and we didn't have school shootings then so in my mind this as so many other aspects from Trump to Black Lives Matter to COVID lockdown protests is a symptom of a deep cultural malaise, which is not going to be handled by policy. And I would say the same thing with this, with this Russia situation, because there seems to be a lot of debate about the usefulness of like helping Ukraine or opposing Russia, et cetera. And that's a debate on both sides, because there are members of the sort of populist right who are very pro-Russia. There are members of the authoritarian left who are, I wouldn't necessarily say pro-Russia, but very willing to parrot Kremlin propaganda because they live in a cinematic universe where the U.S. and Israel can be the only bad guys. <laughs> so, like, both of those are weird. And both of those are 
play into the conversation that we had about Ukraine, where you have like a bunch of overweened like 20 year olds who are hopped up on social justice classes at Berkeley, um, even though their dads run like Chevron <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> who are like, oh, Ukrainians are racists or they're full of Nazis or whatever. And we couldn't, shouldn't be supporting them. Or why do you care about them? But you're not caring about Palestine. Like the amount of people who like came into my TikTok comment section and were like, okay, do Yemen next, do Palestine next. Um, and and I, I responded to those like, okay, buy me a flight. You know, this is like, this flight to Ukraine is like, the, this trip is the first time I've been able to afford overseas travel in like two years, three years plus pandemic, you know? Um, so I'd be happy to go talk about Palestine or Yemen, you know, uh, yeah, or like, there, like there's some yeah. injustice in you only focusing on one right. catastrophic world event at once. Because I know that that's not the case for me. You know, I mean, I spent the last three years of my life in terms of the, the NGO work that I've done and farm link work that I've done. The populations we're dealing with in terms of food insecurity, predominantly black and brown, predominantly uh, black and indigenous people of color, you know, uh, First Nations, um, Native American tribes, like the you, dealing with, in terms of when you're talking about food insecurity, you, those are the politi- the populations you're talking about. And so <laughs> in terms of like going to help a bunch of white people, this is sort of a new thing for me, slightly. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's, that's funny because um, there's all these people who are like, oh, well, the West only cares about Ukraine because they're they're white or European or whatever. And there is a degree to which that is true. The MSNBCs and the CNNs and the New York Times of this world, the West cares more about, and Ukrainians are very attractive people. They care about good looking white European people who are being oppressed by their neighbors. Being, um, being like first world or close to it right. helps yeah. as well. Yes. And then also cultural proximity. Everyone knows a Ukrainian in their lives, you know, like, I, I work right next to the person in the works in the cube next to me is um, exactly she had she's Ukrainian with family who was trying to get out during this entire time. It's like, right. Yeah, it's very she's relatable. in the Azov battalion. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's a neo-Nazi like like the 90 year old Ukrainian grandmothers. Um, yeah. So like there is a degree to which that is true. There are also several important factors which make the Ukraine issue a really big deal in a way that the people who like to woke scold people on the internet for only, you know, standing up for Ukraine instead of for Yemen or Palestine or whatever, that they do not fully grasp, which is that the scale of this is larger than anything we have seen in a long time, potentially since like World War II. Um, it took about seven years to create seven million internally displaced people in the Yemen-Saudi conflict. It took seven weeks to do that in Ukraine. That number is now at 12.5 oh, wow. million internally displaced persons. Jeez. So Holy it is a shit. huge country. The city of Mariupol, which is basically dust and ashes right now, completely leveled by Russian artillery, is the size of Miami. It is the equivalent of a major U.S. population center, and it was completely leveled to the ground. And then there's the aspect of the fact that this is all happening in the nuclear age on the border, you know, and becoming a proxy war between two nuclear powers. So it's thrust us back into the Cold War, which we thought we'd gotten out of, you know. Um, and it definitely is the closest that any of us have been to, I, I would almost say, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, this is the closest that we've gotten to nuclear war. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I would say maybe close to the collapse of the Soviet Union, that was also a very dodgy time. There's some interesting, like, 
technical aberrations that happened that made Boris Yeltsin almost bomb the shit out of everyone um, because they're they had like glitches in their incoming missile system that said that we had launched a nuclear attack when we hadn't. Um, but this is this is it's very difficult to explain people who are living their lives in Southern California and getting street tacos and talking about going to the bungalow that like, this is the closest that we have been to nuclear annihilation in our lives. And it's because of this war that kicked off in this region that people used to not be able to point on a map two months ago. Um, it it, it, and it seems like that looming threat of nuclear war or that, that as a conversation piece is going to be at, that's not going away now. Uh, yeah. I think that's what's also concerning is, I mean, I, I don't want to detract from where you're going, but I think it's also like you mentioned previously, right? Like if, with, if they were, if, um, if a NATO country's hit, right, that's going to immediately involve everyone who's in NATO. But now you're looking at other countries who uh, border Russia that want to join NATO or that was it, is it Sweden and Finland that are now in conversation or that's been, that's been coming up, right? Sweden and uh, Finland. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, you're looking at more and more countries wanting to join NATO, which is in a, I mean, NATO started as a direct reaction to uh, our fear of Russia. Uh, but now you're looking at more people wanting to get involved in it and be part of it that you're just like the concern on the other, the, the concern that revolves around that is like, okay, that just increases the, the chances that, uh, anything goes south over in Europe that we're instantly that, the, that we're all instantly dragged into. That's yeah. a, and that's go, which looks like it'd go for the nuclear option. And it's hard to, so that's not, the fear is not going away. It's hard. That's what's very unsettling right now. Uh, feels like that's, that's going to constantly come up in conversation for the foreseeable future. Right. And Russia's not, um, I don't think they have any intention of wrapping this up anytime soon. So, it could be, you know, an ongoing threat. It, I mean, the nuclear up, that's always been a sort of Damocles that has been, you know, hanging over our heads ever since that first, you know, test. Yeah. Um, but particularly since, like, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's uh, it's sort of Damocles that's been hanging over our head. And I mean, at least we can the, always still hide under our desks if something like that happens. We'll be good. Right. You know? yeah, shelter <laughs> in place. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons that we haven't had general war in Europe is because of horrors of world war ii culminating in the ultimate horror of nuclear extinction um is enough of a deterrent some would say to prevent us from sacrificing whole generations of people for imperial ambition until now (laughs) it keeps us from shooting directly at each other yeah we'd much rather like pay a radical group to uh you know fund them to go destabilize an area or something like that yeah it's a lot easier to just give weapons to the contras so in the in the context of all this being messy and hard to I, I think yeah that's that's one of the things that I get frustrated with yeah I mean almost regardless of what you talk about is just like the urge to paint things in just like this super black and white context where we have a good guy on one side and a bad guy on the other side and you know I mean it sounds like the 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 color revolution in the first place, you know, had a lot of internal support and it rallied people to the side, you know, the more Western leaning sides of the country and stuff. We, we also played a role in getting that up off the ground and moving, you know, not uh, NGOs like you were talking about and um, helped set up TV stations and stuff like that to broadcast it. I mean, John McCain's on the handing out peanut butter sandwiches in the town square and stuff. I feel like that's sometimes hard to balance is 
okay, so maybe the the net outcome of this with uh, you know Russia having less of a foothold in Ukraine, like that could be a positive, you know, but there's a lot that goes into that. That's not as cut and dry. And it's, I mean, it's, I feel like it's just how America has marketed military intervention, you know, since I've been alive, it's just like, you know, like going into Iraq, like we're there to liberate and free these people. And, you know, they want us there and they're fighting for freedom and stuff. And then we find out, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's a lot of ramifications for, I mean, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I, what, what do you think the end game, I mean, the end game for Russia has changed a lot since in the last like few months here, but what, what is it that they have to gain from like drawing this out and stuff? I mean, obviously it's like going home with your hat in your hands if they were to, you know, wrap up their, their operations there and, and leave. But like, what, what do they have to gain from it? Is this just like a, a gun to the, to the West head at this point that keeps them, you know, sacrificing their military well, like, on that altar. Yeah, no, it's, I think I understand what you're getting at. So there's like two questions there. The first is for people who are naturally skeptical of American military doctrine, American propaganda and America's tendency to speak outside both sides of its mouth. When it talks about things like democracy and freedom and Liberty, um, we're a little gun shy of like, throwing ourselves into su- full-throated support for a country that the that America says that needs to have freedom and democracy and all that sort of stuff. But again, this goes back to like the, the people who live in the cinematic universe where only the U.S. and Israel can be the bad guys. Like you have to think more broadly than that. Just because the U.S. Sure. is a motherfucker doesn't mean that Russia is not also a motherfucker. If you don't believe me, <laughs> ask, ask Afghanistan, you know, uh, ask they had their own experience with Russia. You know, ask Chechnya, at least the Chechens who aren't, you know, enthralled to Katarov and the, the, the Patsies. Um, ask other Eastern European countries how they feel about Russian imperialism and aggression and where they place that on the relative scale of like being in NATO or being in the European Union. Like it's important to realize that there are relative levels of motherfuckerness. And Russia is just like they, they've they've reached a degree that I don't think even the U.S. gets to. Um and and you can see that by the fact that like Finland and Sweden, who were independent and neutral, now want to join NATO because of yeah. the threat of what Russia likes to do to its neighbors, you know. And and, uh, and in the specific case of Ukraine, I can tell you they want every scrap of American aid and attention that we can give them. They very much see this as a fight for Europe and democracy, and for they see themselves as like we are the gates of Europe. We are defending a more open, a more democratic, a more liberal way of living. And we suffer not only the risk of extinction, but even worse, the risk of losing that progress and being absorbed back into an incredibly reactionary culture. This is why you see like trans people and gay people fighting on the front lines in Ukraine or like signing up to join the territorial defense because they're like, listen, I can't be who I am in a Russia controlled Ukraine. Like Ukraine is a conservative sort of reactionary culture like most european countries it is hard to be a gay person or a person of color or a trans person or just someone who thinks outside the traditional boxes that eastern european cultures often present to like young people but they understand that that's a relative question and that the progress that ukraine has made on that issue is so much more than the progress russia has made in fact russia has regressed on a lot of those areas and so they see 
they say, listen, you might not like everything about Ukraine. It might not be, you know, you can't exactly live in Ukraine as like a gay person or a trans person like you might be able to in San Francisco or Brooklyn. But like, this is way better than the alternative here. And Ukraine also has this attitude of like, they understand that at the end of the day, they are the only ones who have ever really stood up for themselves. And so they see everyone else, whether it's Russia or NATO or Poland or the United Kingdom or the United States as potential allies, potential adversaries, but ultimately not like nobody in Ukraine feels like they are beholden to the United States or that the United States controls their decision. Like if you told Ukrainians that like, oh, you guys are a vassal state of NATO and a vassal state of the United States, they'd be like, ah, fuck off. We do what we want. And that's like very much the attitude there. Like, you guys want to give us heavy weapons? That's awesome. You guys want to give us Bayraktar drones? You want to give us all this other stuff? Like, that's great. But if you don't, we're going to figure it out ourselves. Because you took all your embassy folks out. You evacuated. Your CIA said that our capital was going to fall in three days. And here we are three months later still defending it. So we're not relying on you to tell us what to do or to tell us the degree to which, like, we are going to be okay because we will be okay. We're going to do this. If you want to help us, that's awesome. If not, get the fuck out of our way because we'll handle it ourselves. That's very much the Ukrainian attitude. Yeah, that's such a great point. I think we're looking at the attitude of the country. Like, yeah, do we? Ha- does the United States have self-serving motives for getting involved in things or not? Sure, of course, totally. it's always yeah. going to be the case with any country when you're looking at a world full of problems. And this isn't to just paint them in a, in a better light, but they're going to serve their interests. Those interests can very frequently go uh, in an opposite direction of the interests of the people or what, what people as a whole find important to them. But if you're, if you're over there and the experience is in the conversations that people are having is that they're very interested in, in getting our help where they can take it regardless of our motives. That's obviously a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. Take what you need. Interesting. It was, was, I, we spent the whole time here talking about like big general questions and stuff like that. Like, um, give us like a, you know, your, what's, what's some of the most impactful things that you saw that you heard that you talked about with Ukrainians? Like, you know, if you had to put it into a, a fortune cookie, like what, what was <laughs> the most impactful part of, of your trip there? Hmm. Yeah. I hate to like or 200 words or less. please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I, I hate to like white curl missions trip this, but I think one of the lasting impressions that I have was the immense sense of purpose and identity that I felt being in a place where people uh, wanted my help and my attention um, and wanted the attention and help of people like me, you know, foreigners who were coming over. And while I would say my impression of America didn't exactly improve all that much by being over there. My impression of Americans was vastly improved. Um, I Hmm. think just because the type of Americans that came out there tended to just be pretty cool. Um, You know, everything from the humanitarian aid workers to uh, the former soldiers who were coming over to fight. I was just constantly impressed seeing these people um, who were coming over and the quality of them. And some of them were, you know, and you've got the whole, every time there's a situation like that, there's like, Grifters and there's like people who are, you know, not there with the best intentions. There are people who are just like have bloodlust. Um, there's all sorts of types of people who come to a place like that under these conditions. And sometimes you spend, you know, more time sort of working through that than you do helping the effort itself. Like 
this huge problem with like sex traffickers coming in and taking advantage of all the vulnerable children and stuff and like sneaking them out of the country and like and, like, and here's the Ukrainian government like we're trying to fight a fucking war and we have all these foreigners coming over here and like trying to take advantage of the the sex trade and like setting up grifty nonprofits to like get 30 Ukrainian kids out of Europe and then the Polish government thankfully has been cracking down on that a lot um, so like that's the type of stuff that people don't think about when this hits off it's like what happens to um, people like that who are vulnerable I mean that's kind of what I went over there to do was set up sort of the stopgap supply in the in the medical supply chain um, because people don't think about like the tertiary aspect so we, we created this thing called like the like the the iceberg I forget what we called it but basically like the 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 trauma iceberg of kind of like war. Um, you basically have primary, secondary, and tertiary victims. And the primary victims are the ones who are like immediately killed and injured by shelling, invasion, you know, shots, that sort of stuff, um, tanks, you know, people who are the immediate victims of the war uh, as casualties. The secondary victims are like people who lose their homes to shelling, you know, people who become internally displaced people, people who are going without food and water and that sort of stuff. Uh, as a result of the war and the effect that it has on their cities. And then the third level are like people who need a daily insulin shot and are used to relying on that. And then a very mundane thing that when a developed society is functioning properly is very easy need to supply, which then they hop on a train and go eight hours from their home after never leaving the country. Say you're a Russian speaker and you come to Lviv, which is Ukrainian-speaking primarily, not that there aren't Russian speakers there, but you're in a foreign place that feels almost like a foreign country, and you need to, you're in a disaster zone still. There's a state of emergency. There's martial law, and you need your thyroid medication, or you need your insulin shot, or you need, you're a cancer patient that needs treatment. So that's kind of what we set up with Mission Hodokiv, was to kind of deal with the tertiary victims of that. You know, we're not like, we're not running to the front line and like doing that sort of stuff. We're we, we are doing some dangerous things. Like, I mean, our team has come under shelling multiple times, but primarily we're trying to get people who everyone else has forgotten about because they are like, quote unquote, more urgent things, um, getting them to safety. Like I, I think about, I think one of the most impactful experiences there was our evacuation of a multiple sclerosis patient named Ihor from Kharkiv. Um, he's, you know, he's like, he's a heavy guy, you know, over 200 pounds. And, um, you know, he is immobile kind of from the neck down um, and doesn't speak much English, spoke a little bit, had never left the country except to go across the border into Russia. And we took he and his mother first on a train from Kharkiv to Lviv and then in a car from Lviv across the Polish border and then to Warsaw. And from Warsaw, we took him to Donsk, which is the border city, the port city. From Donsk, we put him on a ferry to Sweden so that he could file for refugee status and get treatment there. Uh, these are two people who don't speak any of these languages. You're crossing three borders. Um, they've never left their country. And I'm just like imagining the horror of it's being amazing. immobile person in a city like Kharkiv as it's coming under Russian shelling. Like, it's one thing to be in that situation and be able to physically move yourself around. It's another thing to be incapable of doing that and having to rely on your aging mother to push you around in a wheelchair. And those are the types of things where it's just like, that is an experience that so few people are going to have in sort of in, in the circles that we run in. Um, so it was very impactful to be able to like, and then, and then to like 
look into Ihor's eyes and talk to him and realize just how patient he is with everything and how kind he was to us and how we're not medical professionals. You know, I'm a TikToker for God's sake. Like, you know, and yet he bore with the fact that we're like arranging this crazy extraction plan, you know, stuffing him on a train, getting him to the train station. The train station gets bombed two hours after we leave it about a hundred meters from where we're standing. And then we take him in a cramped car like a sedan, have to wait in a hot borderline for two hours, get him over the border. You know, the Ukrainian intelligence is asking all these questions. And then we have to drive four more hours to Warsaw and finally get him into a bed, you know, and this is a guy who can't even change his own diapers. Like, and yet he's patient with us and he's like grateful that we're willing to do this. And yet we're freaking out because we can't provide the level of care that an ambulance could or a professional set of paramedics or EMTs and, and you do that and you just realize that that's something that now has to be done for 10,000 other people, <laughs> you know, oh, man, that's the, the scale of it. It's and daunting. The yeah. Yeah. It's very daunting. Um, and it's, it's weird being back here knowing that that's the type of stuff that my partners are still going through over there. Um, it's almost you know. like a reverse culture shock. You get, you get your, I mean, I'm, you have the, the adrenaline going, you have so much happening that coming back to just the, the mundane aspects of life probably feel felt and still feels strange getting kind of back in the swing of things here, huh? Talking about the Johnny Depp trial. Yeah. It's been two weeks and I'm still like not used to everything here. Yeah. But the the flakiness of LA people and that sort of stuff. And (laughs) just also, yeah, like a transformer blew the other night on our block. I jumped about five feet because it sounded like an artillery shell. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's crazy. Sort of, that stuff's going to take some getting used to, but, but yeah, I'm sure like, I know we got to get you out of here, but uh, I'm sure you put a lot of thought into this in case you just mentioned it. And um, are you, are you team Amber or team Johnny though? <laughs> While we're talking about important things. Yeah. <laughs> I just kidding. Um, you don't have to answer that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I went, the first sign that I got of like the, the winds of change in terms of the cultural conversation was like the, the Oscars and the Chris Rock slap. And then watching yeah. that dominate the news cycle for the next two weeks as like the revelations about the, the raping and execution of civilians that went on in Bucha was happening. And that's like all anyone could talk about in Ukraine. And then we look at the international news secret and people are like, is it appropriate for one black man to slap another black man on national television? You know, everyone's like Twitter discourse comes in. And you're just like, oh my fucking God. Like, it just, <laughs> I remember that. And then the Johnny Depp Dep- trial kicked off soon after. And it's all anyone can talk about. And you just realize Americans have short attention spans. You know, it's like, and then, and I tried to explain to people, I'm like, hey guys, like, honestly, you're pretty lucky that Americans cared about you for a month. Like, that's pretty, yeah. <laughs> that's such a morbid truth. Yeah, that's pretty good for us. <laughs> well, is there, um, no, is the is there a way for people to donate to like either the organization you were working for, or is there a one that you recommend if they wanted to help out in some way? Yeah, I would I would really encourage all of your followers to check out Mission Harkiv. That's uh, mission www.missionharkiv.com and donate through the portal there. Um, we are there. Are, one of the reasons I went over there is because there are a lot of NGOs who claim to be helping Ukraine. And aren't doing shit. They're taking out ads in the Copenhagen airport and then using the money collected to renovate their 
you know, offices in Rome or wherever. And the UN people would show up and like stay in Lviv the entire time and drink expensive cocktails and, or not cocktails because liquor was illegal, but, you know, just sit around and like in their luxury land cruisers and then fundraise. And I can personally guarantee you, because I have been to some of these places that what we are doing in terms of delivering medicines to these outlying villages, which are literally either occupied or were occupied by Russians up to like a week ago, is some of the most dangerous and necessary work that's going on in the entire war. Our partners, like my partner Rostislav, is taking, and everyone who works for his, um, for his essentially his outfit there, for their warehouse, they are taking incredible personal risks every single day um, to go out and deliver medications to people who desperately need it. Uh, they're wearing body armor. They're wearing protective equipment, and they're coming under Russian artillery constantly. Um, it is not unthinkable that they could die in the performance of what they are trying to do with Mission Hotkip. So we have literally been told by—I I won't name names—but like we've been told by significant organizations who are who are to, who are considered to be sort of front line um, that we are the only ones going to some of these villages. So imagine oh, wow. like the, imagine the most respected medical organizations that you can. And those people are telling us that we're, we are taking risks that they don't even allow for their own people. Um, so if you can spare anything, uh, especially, you know, if you're American, if you're European, your donation goes farther in Ukraine than it does, uh, in the U S. So you might think it's a small donation, five, 10, 15, a hundred dollars, but that can actually be fairly significant in terms of our ability to handle logistics of getting medicines to people who really need them. So that is ongoing. Um, even if the war ends tomorrow, that humanitarian crisis is, and that supply chain issue is going to continue and the war will yeah, not end tomorrow. A, yeah, that's the aftermath of war, right? That stuff goes on for decades. Yeah. Missionhardkip.com. Well, Charles, it's good talking to you again, man. I'm glad you could spare some time for us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You've come a long ways from like rubbing tan lotion on Marco Rubio to uh, <laughs> you know being a frontline war activist. So you know, excited to get to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate you guys lending your platform once again. Um, and yeah, it's good to catch up. Literally anytime. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>